Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We've been covering the indictment of Donald Trump in the past couple of episodes. Today, we're going to dig in, just get into great detail about the 34 accounts he's facing, the case that Alvin Bragg is trying to make against him, and if he will be successful. We'll also get into what options Donald Trump has in front of him before his December hearing that he's facing. We're going to get into all of it with Annie McCarthy. He's a Fox News contributor, a contributing editor at the National Review. He's also a former chief assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. So he understands the New York court system. So stay tuned for this episode with Annie McCarthy. So, Andy McCarthy, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I've just obviously I'm familiar with your work. We're colleagues at at Fox, but just in in watching you on TV and reading everything you've written, you just do such a good job just thoroughly breaking this down. So I'm so thankful for you taking the time to join the show. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. It's great to be here. You know, so, Andy, obviously a wild time uh, in American history. This is uh, clearly unprecedented. So 34 felony counts. Can you take us through in detail what exactly Alvin Bragg is accusing Donald Trump of doing? Well, the basic crime uh, in terms of what the legal counts are is very different, Lisa, from the story. So why don't I, why don't I start with what the crimes are and then I can get to why the, um, why the story is incoherent. That'd be great. Uh, so the crimes are what in New York is generally the misdemeanor of falsifying business records. And to commit that crime, which is uh, you, you would get uh, less than a year from in jail, even on the books. Um, but in New York, Alvin Bragg basically doesn't prosecute anything. So this is the kind of case that wouldn't even be brought against somebody normally. Um, but what you would have to prove is that somebody made false entries in their business records and they, it's not enough to show that the entries are false. You have to show that the person did it with fraudulent intent, which usually means that you're trying to swindle someone, right? You're trying to take money or property. Uh, the state argues for a, a kind of a more broad-based definition than that. But th- for now, that's that's uh, pretty much what uh, falsifying business records means. Now, in New York, falsifying business records only has a two-year statute of limitations, and the course of behavior that we're talking about happened in 2017. So ordinarily, if that's what you charge, he'd be out of luck now because the that would have been time barred by probably by 2019, no later than 2020. But what Bragg is trying to do, and the reason he had to go to a grand jury, is juice this up into a felony from a misdemeanor. The reason I say that's why he went to the grand jury in the United States Uh, The Fifth Amendment guarantees you the right to be indicted by a grand jury, which means uh, the community has to 
make sure that the government has enough evidence before the case can proceed to trial. So what a grand jury is supposed to do is find probable cause that the government has a case, and then uh, you move on to the indictment stage. But um, under the Fifth Amendment, you only get an indictment right for a felony. For a misdemeanor, the prosecutor can charge himself by what's known as an information. So here, the reason Bragg was in the grand jury is he wanted this to be a felony case. And in New York, you can inflate the uh, cla- the falsification of records from a misdemeanor into a felony if you can show that by committing the misdemeanor, committing the falsification of records, the defendant was trying to conceal another crime. So what he alleges is that Trump was trying to conceal another crime by making false entries in the Trump organization records, or at least causing false entries to be made. So that's the, that's the 34 counts are all basically that charge. And the way he gets to 34 is there was a series of payments that uh, Trump made to Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen used to be Trump's lawyer. He's the one who uh, laid out the money for this hush money agreement, which is known as a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, he paid $130,000 to Stormy Daniels, uh, the porn star whose real name is uh, Stephanie Clifford. Uh, and then the arrangement with Trump was to repay uh, Cohen over uh, the months of 2017. So basically, he got a monthly check. Uh, and to bring that about, what would happen is Cohn would provide an invoice. The Either Trump or the Trump organization would write a check for him, and then an entry went into the books. So even though this whole thing is really one payback of a loan, it was split into installments monthly. So Bragg basically broke it down into those installments, but not content with that, he broke down each installment to three separate acts, the invoice, the writing of the check, and the book entry. So that's how he gets up to 34. Uh, and we can talk about that, but that's that's kind of a practice that the Justice Department in federal cases tells prosecutors they shouldn't do. I think when I tried the blind shake in the 90s for uh, you know terrorism and mass murder conspiracies and all that stuff, I think I brought five counts. Um, so this is 34 for the for the heavy duty crime, undoubtedly of falsifying business records. So anyway, those are the those are the legal. That's the legal counts. Uh, and I think it's important, Lisa, to say counts because those are allegations. I have a hard time calling them crimes because I think one of the big flaws in this indictment is that he hasn't actually stated a crime because the the felony that we just discussed, you're supposed to show that the person falsified the records to conceal another crime. Bragg does not state in the indictment what the other crime is that Trump supposedly was concealing. So right off the bat, I think he's got a problem in not stating a crime because that's really the main function of a indictment is to tell the defendant what he's accused of doing so that he can prepare his defense. So I think just as a legal, technical, clinical matter, the indictment fails in what the basic purpose of an indictment is. But let me just say quickly, the reason I say the story is incoherent is Bragg's rationale for charging this case when it's perfectly obvious that no one other than Donald Trump would ever have been charged with this is that Bragg's theory is Trump stole the 2016 election by fraud, namely by not disclosing these arrangements, these these hush money deals. And there are at least, uh, he, he lays out three of them uh, in the statement of facts that he filed along with the indictment. But the thing about it is non-disclosure agreements are legal. In fact, they're a staple in the uh, civil justice system of how litigation gets closed out and people make uh, agreements. We, f- we frequently hear that you know a-, a lawsuit was dropped and the party settled and there was an exchange of money and everybody agreed not to talk about it anymore. That happens all the time. So uh, there's nothing illegal about non-disclosure agreements. So according to Bragg, 
Um, Trump stole the 2016 election by fraud. And yet when you look at the indictment, the charges run from February 14th, 2017 to December 5th, 2017. So they start basically four months after the 2020, the 2016 election was already over. It's inconceivable that you could commit a fraud in 2016 based on acts that you don't carry out until months after the 2016 event is over. So the, so the thing, it doesn't make any sense factually. So why do you think he went with the 2017 date? Uh, what I had heard was, I, I think the transaction was in, uh, I believe, October of 2016. So why do you think he went with 2017? Do you know the basis of that? Yeah, the the same reason that he only charged when it get when it got down to counts, he only charged the Stormy Daniels non-disclosure agreement, uh, not the uh, not the transactions attendant to the other two hush money arrangements that they talk about in the statement of facts. The reason is he needs Trump to be an active participant. What happened in October of 2016 is that Michael Cohen paid the money to Stormy Daniels. What happened from February to December of 2017 is that Trump paid Michael Cohen. So in order to get the counts against Trump, uh, he has to go to Trump's personal activity. So that's the that's the stuff that happened in 2017. So that makes sense. So but even right there in laying this out at the beginning, I mean, there's already three glaring issues. I mean, one, he's already essentially being denied due process, even in the indictment itself, because it doesn't lay out what crime he was pursuing in the pursuit of a felony. Uh, and then secondly, you have the statute of limitations concerns. And then, you know, thirdly, you have the timeline of it just being asinine that somehow he was defrauding an election when the transactions are after the fact. So, you know, right there, you know, I, I'm not an attorney, but, you know, even just from a, a common sense perspective, uh, you know, that's all a head scratcher. Also, you know, I, I would assume that the crime that he's allegedly concealing or if this is having to do with the 2016 election, those would be, you know, federal aspects. So what jurisdiction does a local DA have to enforce federal law? Yeah, let me answer that. And I want to come back to the first point you made, okay. because I think it's really important, which yeah, is the please. due process problem. The reason, you know, Bragg is not an idiot. Uh, he's been a prosecutor for a long time. I think he's not a very good prosecutor, and he's been uh, unethical the way he brought this case, but he's not stupid. Um, there's a reason why he doesn't want to say what the other crime is. Um, he knows that that is problematic, that he hasn't, uh, has, that he hasn't done that. Uh, and the reason, Lisa, is every other crime that he wants to cite is a problem for him. And the two main ones that he has sort of thrown out there without uh, committing himself are federal campaign finance violations and state campaign finance violations. But he knows that uh, on the federal side, he doesn't have jurisdiction to enforce federal law. And on the state side, he knows that the state election laws apply only to state wide, you know, state elections, elections for state office. And this is a, obviously a, an election for the presidency. If Imagine how chaotic it would be if every state had their own election laws that applied to federal elections, so that if you stood for national office, you would have to comply, especially for the presidency, with, uh, you know, 50 different sets of laws. So clearly, when Congress comes in and uh, has a set of election laws that apply to federal elections that preempts the state laws they can't apply their laws and the state by their own terms the state laws don't apply to to federal elections so that's why Bragg doesn't want to go there and what he's relying on is an ambiguity in the statute what what the the felony falsification of record statute says is it's a felony if by falsifying the records, the, the person intended to commit or conceal, and the term is another crime. So the statute doesn't say um, another New York state crime, but since we're dealing with the New York state penal code, the presumption has to be that when it talks about another crime, it's talking about another New York crime. Uh, there's no reason to think it meant another federal crime or that you can put federal in there just because the, the state legislature did or did not uh, 
you know, cite to what authority uh, the crime they were talking about was. You have to assume it was a New York crime because otherwise, what's the limiting principle? You know, is a is a crime against the law of France good enough? You know, is a Sharia crime good enough? Um, so obviously what the New York legislature was talking about was a New York crime. And Bragg knows that. And that's the reason he doesn't want to state a federal crime. Uh, also, you know, he's got other problems with that. Number one, I don't think these expenditures, whatever you think of them, um, amount to a to in-kind campaign contributions under federal law. So he not only has to show that these were if if he had jurisdiction to enforce federal law, he would not have he would not only have to show that these were in kind federal campaign donations. He would also have to show that Trump knew that and that he was intentionally trying to conceal that when the records were falsified. And there's no reason to believe I, I frankly don't think there's any reason to believe these were campaign finance uh, actions under federal law. Uh, the thought that Trump knew they were is far fetched. And I would just point out that in the last big campaign finance case that drew a lot of attention, the John Edwards case, which involved a lot more money than this one, um, the Federal Election Commission and the Department of Justice, the two uh, components of the federal government that actually do have jurisdiction over campaign finance violations, disagreed on whether these were in-kind payments or not. So the thought that Trump would know what a campaign finance violation was when the two regulatory arms of the federal government can't agree on it is is very far-fetched. And that puts aside, you know, a, a whole host of other problems such that, uh, such as that uh, most campaign finance violations are handled by paying a fine to the FEC. They don't criminalize them. People don't get indicted for them. The Obama campaign had a 2.5, I think it was, million dollar violation in 2008. You'll be shocked to learn, Lisa, that the Obama Justice Department decided not to indict the Obama campaign. Now that's shocking. Uh, yeah, it is shocking. And they let them get <laughs> off with like a, a $300,000 fine. So, that you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign got uh, fined by the FEC for mischaracterizing the way that they used the Steele dossier, right? They, they, they categorized it as legal fees and it was actually opposition research. So, you know, they don't criminalize this ordinarily they're just you know they're criminalizing it for this guy even though they don't actually have a have a crime so i i think you're right to point out that this the big flaw in the indictment is the failure um to state what the crime is and that if i could that just it brings me back to your original point about due process because there's there's three real problems with this that i don't see how bragg can um overcome one is just the obvious the point of an indictment is to put a person on notice of what the crime is so he can uh, prepare his defense. If you don't tell the guy what he's accused of, he can't prepare a defense. So the indictment fails even as an indictment. It doesn't do the thing an indictment's supposed to do. Uh, the second point of an indictment in uh, American constitutional law is an indictment is supposed to be the way that you plead double jeopardy if you ever get charged again with the same crime. So in other words, again, the indictment has to stay, say what you're accused of. So if another prosecutor down the road ever tried to do that again, your indictment is your evidence that they can't do that because you've already been prosecuted for that crime. But again, if the indictment doesn't state the crime, then it can't perform that function as your double jeopardy defense either. And then I think the third thing, which should end up being a pretty big issue, I would think, in the pretrial motions is... The the prosecutor's function in the grand jury is to be the legal advisor for the grand jury when they make their finding, uh, when they vote for the indictment. And what technically what the grand jury has to find when they indict is that every essential element of a crime is supported by probable cause. Uh, every crime, whether it's a federal crime or a state crime, is broken down into components which the law regards as or, or calls essential elements. So for example, if I accused you of armed bank robbery, the essential elements would be that 
Yeah, you didn't do it. You're you're not guilty. See, I didn't do it. We're we're already we're already advancing the ball here. But <laughs> the essential elements would be that um, you know you entered and robbed the bank. You were armed and you intended to do it. In other words, it wasn't an accident or a or a mistake. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about when you say that somebody you have the government has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, or the grand jury has to find probable cause in order to indict. That's what we're talking about on those essential elements. And the reason this is important is Bragg, if the grand jury indictment is proper, Bragg has to have given the grand jury legal instructions on all of the elements they had to find in order to find that there was probable cause to indict Trump. So if he didn't put the crime that Trump was supposedly concealing in the grand jury, I think the chances are very high that he didn't instruct the grand jury on what that crime was. And I don't see how the grand jury could have properly indicted on that crime unless Bragg told them what the crime was that Trump was supposedly concealing. But it seems to me it would be very peculiar if he went through that with the grand jury, told the grand jury what the crime was, and then didn't put it in the indictment. That would be very strange. So I suspect that he probably uh, violated the law in the grand jury, which will be an issue in the pretrial motions. We're going to take a quick commercial break. More with Andy McCarthy. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. The feds decided not to pursue campaign finance charges uh, regarding these payments. Do you know why? And, and does that mean anything for this case that Trump's facing out of New York City? Yeah. So I think that the way the Southern District of New York, which is my old office in uh, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan, they were trying to build a case against Trump. And a lot has been made of the fact that they got Michael Cohen to plead guilty to two charges of, of campaign finance fraud in connection with these payments. One was for Stormy Daniels. The other was for the other woman involved, uh, Karen McDougal who Trump also is allegedly had a fling with like in 2006, 2007, and she was paid $150,000 at least in value. But that the reason they haven't charged that transaction is no money changed hands involving Trump and the Trump people. Rather, what happened in that case was she was paid $150,000 by Trump's friends at the National Enquirer for the exclusive rights to her story. And Trump Cohen and Cohen was supposed to reimburse the National Enquirer and then and then Trump would have reimbursed Cohen, uh, except the National Enquirer decided it was the better part of valor that they just eat that expense and not 
take it from Cohen. So ultimately, the only value that changed hands was between the National Enquirer and McDougal. So that's the reason Trump is in charge with that. But the federal prosecutors charged Cohen with that. And as a result, you hear a lot of um, apologists for Bragg say that, of course, these are campaign finance violations as to Trump because Cohen already pled guilty to them. And what I think people need to understand about that is Cohn pled guilty because the Southern District had him over a barrel. Um, they had a big fraud case on Cohen. He had a uh, bank fraud charge, which in federal law is a 30-year count uh, involving a multi-million dollar line of credit. And he had five tax evasion charges that involved uh, $4 million of undeclared income. So he was looking at a lot of time in prison. He wasn't going to get anything close to 30 years, but he might have gotten you know seven or eight years in prison for, for this. And like most defendants who were in that position, um, his only way out was to cooperate with the government in making other cases, because then under the federal sentencing guidelines, the prosecutors can file what's, uh, what's uh, a motion that's available under the guidelines, which gives the court the authority to sentence the guy to no time or much less time than the sentencing guidelines uh, prescribe. So Cohn's problem is that all of these fraud counts that he was involved in don't implicate Trump at all. This was his own uh, business that he was involved in in New York. Uh, and the Southern District wanted to build a case against Trump. The only thing they had on Trump that involved Cohen were these two uh, hush money arrangements. So they got Cohen to plead guilty to those two counts. I think the reason Cohen agreed to do it is the fraud counts against him were so severe that the campaign finance counts, which were comparatively from minor amounts of money, did not add anything to his sentencing exposure. It didn't change what his sentence would have been at all. So all it was was adding uh, you know, two more counts onto a laundry list of things he was already going to plead guilty to. It didn't add any time. So from his perspective, all it did was make him a more attractive witness because he was willing to say that Trump uh, was implicated in these campaign finance uh, violations. And from the Southern District standpoint, it was a no-lose proposition because they're trying to build a case against Trump when Cohen pleaded guilty, that meant the case would never be tried. So the campaign finance violations would never be challenged. And in pleading guilty, you waive your right to appeal. So the Southern District was never going to have to defend those charges on appeal. So everybody wins, right? And they, what they were trying to do was build a case on Trump. You asked me, why didn't they bring this case? After all, if they got Cohen to plead guilty to it, why not bring it against Trump? And the answer is because in the end, they're not really in kind donations. And I think the Southern District and the Justice Department understand understood that if somebody actually challenged these in court as, you know, are they as a matter of law in-kind campaign donations, they would have lost and it would have been humiliating. So they decided if they were going to make a case on who, on a man who was then the president of the United States, I, I think everybody should agree with this. If you're going to bring a case like that, it should be a very obvious, very serious crime that's backed by very convincing evidence. And they knew they didn't have that, so they didn't bring the case. And a lot of people, when I point that out, a lot of people say, well, that was the Trump Justice Department. And what I would say about that is, you know, number one, the Southern District of New York uh, is famously renegade when it comes to political corruption cases. Uh, they've done a lot of them uh, in defiance of what the Justice Department wanted them to do. But even if that weren't the case, um, I don't know if, if this is late breaking news for people or not, but as of January 20th, 2017, the, or 2021, the Justice Department's been under new management. You know, the Biden administration. <laughs> We've, has, noticed. <laughs> so, We've noticed. We've noticed, Andy. Yeah, I know it. Haven't we ever? But, you know, I mean, they've had 27 months to bring a case if it was there. And we also know, Lisa, look, they're scorching the earth. To it's not like they don't want to make a case against Trump, right? They're going on them. They're going after him on January 6th. They're going after him. And I think probably going to get him on the uh, on the documents case, which they've, they're now sort of pitching as a uh, 
a grand jury obstruction case rather than documents retention. But we know they're trying very hard to make a case against Trump. They didn't bring this one because legally it just doesn't add up. Also, the, the documents, though, seems rather unfair because, you know, my understanding is a president ultimately has the authority. And so it's sort of gray area in terms of, you know, if he declassified or, or not. And then it seems like every president has some sort of back and forth in terms of turning over records or is probably you know, guilty of this, whereas, you know, Joe Biden in the Senate to take to take documents out of a skiff is like you're like malice, like actual malice to, you know, to have done that as opposed to, you know, just accidentally bringing stuff with you. Um, I'm not the most organized person, so probably best for me not to be president because I would totally do right. that by accident. So, yeah, but I've never <laughs> had classified documents for the record. Yeah. I also did not rob the bank. So just to be clear, uh, in case anyone's listening, we're, you know, we're, so, we're covering all the crimes you haven't committed. Just, and exactly. You just got to lay it out there, you know, better be safe than uh, than sorry here in, in this environment. Um, you know, and, and so obviously, you know, they're laying out the 34 counts to try to stack the deck in the event that it makes it easier to try to land one. So his next in-person hearing is in December. What options does Donald Trump have in front of him before that date? Can he try to get this thrown out? What you know, what is the appeals process like? What's next for Team Trump in this, you think? That's a great question. I think that um, I wouldn't fault them for not immediately moving to dismiss the indictment because uh, unlike uh, the way it worked when I was a federal prosecutor back in the uh, Stone Age, um, they didn't get the indictment, the lawyers, until they were in court on, was it Tuesday afternoon? Uh, so, you know, it wasn't until like 2.30 Eastern time Tuesday afternoon that they even saw this thing. So I don't think that it, they should be faulted for not having uh, done anything there and then. But now that they've had a chance to digest it, I would go into court. Uh, they have a motion schedule. I think for the moment that, you know, the, that court is very congested and cases move very slowly. So what the judge did the other day was set a motion schedule. The government's supposed to start making discovery right away. Um, Trump has until August to make pretrial motions, including motions to dismiss the indictment. Uh, the state has about, uh, I think six or eight weeks to respond to that. And then the next time they're all supposed to be in court again is December, which just seems eight months from now, just seems ridiculous. But if I were Trump's lawyers, I would try to get under the judge's toes now. I mean, I would, now that you've had a chance to read this thing, I would go in and simply argue, you know, look, the indictment fails to state a crime. So we shouldn't even be here because they have to state a crime before you can start a criminal proceeding. And um, I would also be arguing that he seems to be trying to say that he can enforce federal campaign finance law. And my hook to try to get the judge to move on this and go quickly would be a twofold argument. One would be um, this is a, a state proceeding, but it's got enormous consequence for national electoral politics and it shouldn't be allowed to hang over the country if there isn't a case here you know it's one thing if bragg stated a serious crime and it looked like he could prove it then you would just have to you know go through with that but here it doesn't look like he has a crime at all much less much evidence so uh, i i would try to push them on that end and then the other thing i'd say to them lisa is because he's purporting to uh, be able to enforce federal campaign finance laws, although we, at least we think he is. Um, and the statutes of New York law do not allow him to do that. I would signal to the judge in New York that if they don't get satisfaction here, they're going to go into federal court and say that make an argument that the the Manhattan district attorney who doesn't have jurisdiction to enforce these criminal laws is trying to do that. And I think the reason you do that is, uh, you know, you try to nudge this judge into taking action. You know, this thing he's got he, right now, he's got it on the slow train. And I think you want him to move on it. And judges, what tends to get judges attention uh, and get them to move faster is the prospect of their work being checked by a different court. So that's what I do. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then Andy's going to continue breaking down the indictment against Donald Trump. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This judge uh, specifically has donated to Democrats in 2020, uh, in- including that of Joe Biden. Now, they're not big donations, but they're donations nonetheless. Does that increase his probability if this judge denies him the ability to try to throw this out, to take it beyond that and saying, not only have I faced you know, a- a corruption from the Manhattan DA, but also a, a biased judge who you know, one could argue maybe he should even recuse himself in this instance. He's already demonstrated a bias against Trump and the donations that he's made. Yeah, Lisa, I think that the the one motion that Joe Tacopina, who is one of Trump's lawyers, has talked about publicly already is selective prosecution. And I think that they are going to take the the, the background facts about the judge that you just laid out uh, in conjunction with the fact that Bragg brings this case against Trump, which he wouldn't bring against anyone else. Uh, as I've been saying all along, I think we call Bragg the district attorney because that's his title. Um, but we really shouldn't look at him as a law enforcement official. We should look at, at him as a progressive Democrat who's been elected to office on a campaign to go after this one guy. I mean, basically, Bragg's pitch to voters in New York was two things. One, if if you elect me, I won't enforce the law, um, which his progressive base is, uh, likes. And as a result, what he's more famous for in New York is taking actual felonies and, and you know degrading them to misdemeanors or not prosecuting them at all. So it's very rich that here he's taken something that's a, a trivial misdemeanor, if, if it's even that, and tried to inflate it into a felony. Um, but you know, he, he campaigned on getting Trump, which is unseemly for a prosecutor and the, and the voters of Manhattan elected him on the promise to get Trump. So I think both those things go into the mix when Trump brings his motion that this is a unconstitutional selective prosecution. You have the judge, you have the prosecutor and you have the jury pool, uh, which all seem to have it in for him. Uh, you know, he'll have to make the case on on the judge. And, you know, Trump is saying very aggressive things uh, about the judge who has handled other cases involving the Trump organization. Trump's lawyers, on the other hand, are saying very different things about the judge and, and that, like, uh, you know, they, they don't think that there's a basis, at least at this point, uh, to say that he's unfair. But we'll have to see how he handles the case and how that unfolds. But if I'm Trump, the argument I make is not just based on the judge or even just based on Bragg or even based on the jury pool. I would, I, I 
bring the whole thing together and just say, you know, there's no way that this is a fair proceeding. Well, and obviously the the concern at all of this is, you know, we're, we're talking about a liberal city and a liberal state with liberal judges, with a jury of your peers or, or probably a bunch of liberals. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people are concerned, you know, can he get a fair shake in that environment? In your estimation, with your experience of, of having been in the, you know, the Southern District of New York on the, the federal level, but you know, kind of understanding the court system in the state of New York. What happens with this? How does this go down, do you think? I think it gets thrown out prior to trial. I don't think this case ever gets tried. So you think he can get a fair shake? Yeah, I think if the judge, you know, I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that the judge is unfair. You know, it's one thing to say that, uh, you know, he has political preferences. Everybody in New York has political preferences. Um, it's another thing to say that he won't do his job right. And th- this seems to be an egregious set of legal flaws uh, with respect to this particular indictment. And Lisa, let's remember, even the left wing commentariat is out there saying, oh, boy, you know, Bragg really laid an egg here. So it's not like the judge would be the first person on the political left of center uh, if he threw this case out to say that there were a lot of problems with this case. The other thing I would just point out to people is that, you know, we're looking at this case in a vacuum at the moment because it's the only one in front of us. But by the time we come back eight months from now, I think even eight weeks from now, this could be a very different situation. I mean, you know, I think by May, you may see charges from the prosecutor in Fulton County, Fannie Willis, who's looking into the Georgia 2020 election stuff. And it's obvious that this special counsel from the Justice Department is steaming ahead. You know, this week, uh, probably the biggest thing uh, uh, in terms of significance, I don't think that the Bragg case is much, but in terms of future significance for Trump, maybe the most important thing that's happening this week is uh, is, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, is putting Secret Service agents in the grand jury on Friday. Um, to testify about what they observed in in terms of, uh, you know, Trump looking at reviewing documents. And it's obvious that the reason they're doing that is to try to he's he's doing that to try to help build his grand jury obstruction case. What they want to show is that after Trump's lawyers told the Justice Department in June of 2022 that they had done a thorough search of Mar-a-Lago and the 38 documents they gave them that day were the only 38 documents with classification markings at Mar-a-Lago. What Smith is now trying to develop is evidence that Trump not only knew that wasn't true, but that he actually physically reviewed and moved documents around the property after that. So that's clearly why he's putting the the, uh, Secret Service agents in. It's a very weighty thing. The, the, The government hates the idea of Secret Service agents testifying against their protectees. It makes it very difficult for the Secret Service to do their job. Um, That is not the kind of thing that a prosecutor does unless he's dead serious about making this case. And I think you can say that for the way he's handled January 6th, too, because he's now, you know, he's he's getting Mike Pence, who is the highest ranking executive official other than Trump and the Trump administration, he's going to have to testify in the grand jury next week. And he's already uh, also compelled testimony from, you know, the chief of staff, Mark Meadows and other top officials in the uh, in the Trump administration. The reason I mention that is the Justice Department is usually in court when these kind of things come up arguing for a very robust, extravagant interpretation of what the executive branch's privileges are. Here, what's happening is they're eroding the privileges, which will be to the detriment of Biden and all future presidents. Again, I think it's the kind of thing they wouldn't do unless they were dead serious about making a case. So I think if we come back, you know, a couple of months from now, this may not be the only case and we may look at this a lot differently. I mean, the left wants him behind bars. You know, we know this. And with all these criminal investigations he's facing, the probability of that has increased. What happens if he is found guilty before the election, if that is what the timeline would look like? Or what happens if he was to hypothetically win the election and then found guilty? Yeah, I don't think he'll ever be found guilty before the election. My own view of it is, for you know, for what it's worth, 
Um, I mean, you're not asking me to put my political hat on, but I'm, I'll put it on. Uh, I think they want him to be the nominee. And I think they realize that the more unfair and provocative they are, and the more it, it looks like they're using the criminal justice system as a political weapon against him, uh, the more it gins up the Trump base. We've already seen this week he had his best week politically. It's it's astonishing if you think about like all the things that DeSantis is accomplishing in in Florida. Um, you know, to see Trump, you know, spike ahead of him as he's done. I, I mean, obviously, this is just a snapshot, and we'll see how it all plays out. But um, you know, the effect that this is having on the Republican electorate is exactly what the Democrats want. So I've always thought that they're not going to drop these indictments without thinking through timing. Uh, and I don't see him ever going to trial or being convicted, much less anyone trying to impose a jail sentence before, at least before he's tied up the uh, the Republican nomination. Uh, that's what they want. They like The Democrats like the havoc that this is wreaking uh, in Republican politics. As for what happens if he gets you know, indicted or convicted, you know, the constitution says that the only qualifications for president are that you be over the age of 35, uh, a natural born citizen and resident in the United States for 14 years. That's it. There's nothing in the constitution that says that the American people can't elect not only somebody who's accused of a crime, but somebody who's convicted of a crime and in prison. Now you obviously, if a person couldn't perform the functions of the presidency for whatever reason, it would be incumbent on Congress to impeach and remove and disqualify the person. But, you know, we're a long way from that. There's nothing that says that he can't be uh, nominated, elected and serve while he's under investigation, indictment or even I, I think they would probably if he got elected and he hadn't been tried yet. I think the courts would probably suspend the trials until after his term was over. But, you know, anyone tells you, Lisa, that they know what's going to happen here is either lying or delusional because we've never been here before and nobody knows what's going to happen. What is the probability in your mind of them landing a conviction on either the federal charges he's facing, the charges out of New York or, or Fulton, Georgia? I think the I don't like the January 6th case, but I think Smith is pretty serious about bringing it. I don't like it because it's, you know, he's probably going to charge him if he brings a case with uh, conspiring to obstruct Congress's uh, ratification of uh, Biden's election. Um, the only way I think he can do that is by criminalizing a legal theory, which even if it's a boneheaded legal theory, I think that's a that's a road we don't want to go down. When I was a prosecutor, if a frivolous legal theory is now going to be a uh, a felony, I could have charged five of them a day. I mean, defense lawyers are very creative with the, some of the stuff they come up with. So I hope he doesn't go there, but he may go there. The strongest case, Lisa, it seems to me, is the, um, is the documents case, which would be presented as a documents case, except for the political inconvenience that it turns out that Biden also is a, you know, a serial hoarder of classified documents illegally. Um, so now what you have seen happen, uh, and I think this was pretty predictable the minute that uh, it became obvious that Biden also hoarded classified documents, the prosecutor, the Justice Department, the Biden administration, and the media Democrat con complex has reframe that case from a document retention case to a grand jury obstruction case. And what they're going to argue is that the difference in the two situations and what justifies prosecuting Trump, but not trust uh, prosecuting Biden is that Biden cooperated with the authorities, whereas Trump obstructed the grand jury. I don't know if that's going to work as a public relations strategy, but that's their story and they're sticking to it. And I do think he's going to be indicted for obstructing the grand jury. Well, so I think you could make the argument that he didn't because there was additional documents in his home that he didn't make them aware of. But I, I see your point in terms of legally what they would they would try to argue. But uh, Andy, this has been truly fascinating. I have learned so much in this period of time with you. I would absolutely love to have you back on the show. You do such a great job breaking this all down uh, for people like me who do not have a legal degree, <laughs> but doing so, uh, but doing so in a, you know, it's good for your mental health that, that uh, you didn't uh, 
let them do law school to you, Lisa. So that's good. And, and look at all the, you know, I these, really, my dad's look a, at all these crimes you haven't committed. So, you know, well, my dad's a lawyer and I, I thought about it cause I, you know, uh, I kind of share his analytical nature, but uh, this was fascinating. You do such a great job. I've learned so much from you, uh, and I, I just truly appreciate your time and your expertise in this. In this, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So was Andy McCarthy. I, I'm so glad he came on the show because he does such a good job of. I, I think it's really hard for uh, attorneys and particularly people in the legal field to break things down in layman's terms. And he's able to do that in such a, you know, take these complex issues and and make it easy for us to understand even without having a a legal degree or a legal background rather. So I appreciate him coming on the show. I appreciate you guys at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, this new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4patriots.com Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com Lisa. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.